welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Women and Children First. When I was a little girl, I wished I was a boy. I tagged along behind the gang and wore me corduroys. Everybody said I only did it to annoy, but I was going to be an engineer. Our music throughout is by Peggy Seeger off of the 1979 album Different, Therefore Equal. This is I'm Gonna Be an Engineer. You'll be glad that you're a girl. Our show today is about Shulamith Firestone's radical feminist book, The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution, published in 1970. But first, a brief note on the death of Kate Millett, last Wednesday, September 6th. Listeners of Interchange will know we discussed Millett's own radical feminist book, Sexual Politics, back in May with Maggie Doherty. Doherty wrote an obituary essay on Millett in The New Republic and points out what a monumental year 1970 was for the feminist manifesto. A year which saw into print both Millett's and Firestone's books, Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, Tony Cade's anthology The Black Woman, and Robin Morgan's anthology Sisterhood is Powerful, the last of which is out of print. Someone out there, fix that, please. Doherty details the focus of these manifestos. Quote, Firestone described a world of women liberated from the tyranny of reproduction. In her feminist utopia, joy and sexual pleasure were not eliminated, but rather rediffused, breaking the constraints placed on them by patriarchy. Millet, too, believed that patriarchy could be destroyed. Humanity depended on it. If we did not have these rigid sexual roles, she once said, we would all have so much more room for spontaneous behavior, for doing things that we feel like doing, for following our own instincts, for being imaginative, for being creative. The great thing about it all is that we could not only change this, but in the process, really improve everything else as well. Patriarchy, she believed, would eventually become just one regrettable era in human history." Unquote. The Dialectic of Sex is widely considered the most influential book of second-wave feminism. In it, Firestone argues that the biological sexual dichotomy is the root cause of male domination, economic class exploitation, racism, imperialism, and ecological irresponsibility. Firestone insists that the cultural and technological preconditions exist that make the elimination of sexual inequality possible and perhaps necessary for human survival. Our guest, Kathy Weeks, returns to Interchange today. She joined us in June to discuss her book, The Problem with Work. She's a Marxist feminist who teaches in the Women's Studies program at Duke University. The dialectic of sex remains remarkably relevant today and, as Kathy Weeks says, remarkably prescient. Shulamath Firestone died in 2012, but her ideas live on through this extraordinary book. Ah, oh, but now that times are harder and me Jimmy's got the sack. I went down to Vickers, they were glad to have me back. But I'm a third-class citizen, my wages tell me that. And I'm a first-class engineer. The boss, he says, we pay you as a lady. You only got the job because I can't afford a man. This book, uh, Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex, what is it that draws you to it as a woman, as a thinker, a scholar yourself? The reason that I was first drawn back to this text, um, to, to reread it, was because of its um, its odd place in feminist histories, that on the one hand, the text is constantly being cited and mentioned and put in anthologies. It's considered a 
you know, one of the, the foundational texts of second wave feminist thought. And on the other hand, it's been routinely and even willfully ignored hmm. in feminism. Um, you know, the text has often been out of print. And though people would mention it, I don't think many people have actually spent time reading it. And I think feminism has a really deep kind of ambivalence about this text. I mean, in part, it's such an idiosyncratic text. I mean, it's sort of hard to to grasp and, and, and get your mind around because she was such a unique thinker. And I think people want it to be more representative of a period. And so it's always been an odd text that way. But I think also, again, it represents, I think, the best of radical feminism in the 1970s, but also the worst. And I think feminists today are rightly um, critical of Firestone's inattention to race, her inattention to sexuality, her overprivileging of gender as the only optic and the only kind of hierarchy that she looks at, the kind of essentialist way she talks about gender so that it often it seems to be sort of biologically determined and somehow more primary mm -hmm. than other aspects of her identity. So I think feminists are, you know, rightly wary of some of the theoretical moves, but there's so much more in the text. And I really think it's an incredibly rich resource for thinking about gender today. This text, uh, as you say, has is uh, one of the one of the classics, I suppose. Now we say of second wave feminism and um, uh, listeners to the show will will have heard that term before. We've talked about Kate Millett's sexual politics, uh, for example. And, um, you know, we start out, I guess, in that show, and, and maybe we should start out here in some sense with recognizing its um, predecessor, I suppose. Both Millett and Firestone look back to uh, Beauvoir's um, second sex. And when you talk about both of those books, which have to be considered fairly small forays into this fight uh, compared to the second sex, which is a large um, encyclopedia in some sense, right? It's a historical look at what it means to be the second sex. So both of those books, this one in particular, does seem to, to jump into one aspect of the issue. Uh, maybe maybe it, it sort of goes further into aspects uh, that are a part of it, but generally to say being a woman has been equated with being a pregnant woman and then a mother. And that's pretty much as far as it gets. And that's an oppression. That's its is uh, maybe I'm jumping too far ahead to say that's its primary um, contention. And again, I don't know if that's even very unique to say that childbirth is the defining character for uh, what it means to be woman. Yeah, and, and I think it is important. And I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Beauvoir because uh, she dedicate, Firestone dedicates the book to her, um, which is interesting. And, and for the listeners who um, uh, heard the show about Kate Millett, um, Kate Millett's sexual politics and... Firestone's Dialectic of Sex were published in the same year, in 1970. Mm -hmm. I actually think, I, I don't think of this as a narrow text. I think of it mm -hmm. as incredibly wide-ranging. I mean, we'll talk about her, her, her causal analysis of, you know, the fact that all of this is rooted in reproductive biology for her, deeply mm -hmm. problematic claim. And so I, I think that, that that's right. But she's trying to trace out from that a really uh, broader sets of problems. So the book is about, 
you know, it purports to take on all of human history and it talks about the far off future. It talks about culture. It talks about institutions. It's really trying to sort of talk about the, um, what she thinks of the origin or the key to this larger set of patriarchal institutions and cultural formation. So I think of it as a enormously wide ranging mm. kind of text, even if, as you say, she does trace it to a particular single cause. Mm. Well, maybe I'm just reacting to the size of it compared to Beauvoir's book. <laughs> so, right. It's all, it's all about size, right? Is a father better than a mother? This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Kathy Weeks of Duke University joins us to talk about Shulamath Firestone's 1970 book, The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution. better than the other. Ajax shoulders, move boulders, heaven's hips launch ships. Opposites favor, their opposites nature. Adam and Eva, fish and chips. She's writing, I mean, in some ways, and this is another reason why I'm so attracted to this text. She's, it's really more like a manifesto. Mm-hmm. You know, Beauvoir was writing, you know, philosophy and history. And, and, and Firestone is really writing something more like a manifesto. And it really has both the style and some of the contents of a manifesto. So the style, I mean, that's one of the things that you get when you read this text. It's a big spectacle mm-hmm. of a text. I mean... She has this kind of take-no-prisoners way of talking. Um, It's very sort of aggressive in its tone. It's sort of like she's telling us she's going to tell us the truth for the first time, right? And she's not going to, you know, she's not going to make any concessions for our delicate sensibilities. You know, she uses these, you know, very, you know, she uses a lot of sarcasm in some ways. She makes these grand claims and she does it with this, kind of, you know, florid sort of language. There's a lot of bluster and bravado. One of the early claims, and this is the part, one of the things that I love about the text, she says she's talking about how wide-ranging this feminist critical project is and what it would mean to actually liberate women. And she says, if there was another word more all-embracing than revolution, we would use it. Nice. I know. And yeah. so, the, you know, it, it's part of the problem is that, you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea, that <laughs> right. tone in some ways. And Snitto calls dialectic of sex one of feminism's most, you know, infamous demon texts, mm-hmm. you know, endlessly quoted out of context, you know, endlessly, you know, put out there to stir debate um, and argument. But it's also the case that it's a manifesto in the sense that it's trying to do what all manifestos do. And that is to create a kind of political collectivity out of the audience. And it does it by addressing a we as if that we already exists, you know, we feminists. Mm -hmm. It's actually trying to call that we into being. It's trying to convince us to sign on and be part of this project right? By assuming that we're already included in it. Mm. And that's part of what she's doing too. So, I I mean, I think it's a very different kind of genre Mm -hmm. that she's writing into. Mm. What is it about that, that seventies era that, that, you know, has 
like still is almost crystallized in time is the only time that you could have an Andrea Dworkin, a Shulamith Firestone, a, a Kate Millett, a Catherine McKinnon, who still plugs on, of course, but, uh, you know, who these outlandish figures almost, right? I mean, Dworkin is, of course, the, the poster child for this outlandishness and, and the poster child for all the male hate and female hate that is thrust on this period as well. Like this period is almost a dumping ground for how crazy women were in the 70s. Yeah, and, and I think that's an interesting contrast, too, between the kind of organizing efforts and the kind of utopian dreams that were nourished in that moment and the kind of narrow individualism that we're expected to embrace today. And Firestone was actually, and I think like a lot of feminists in that moment, they were really struggling for how to think about women as a collectivity, so, so, so she uses the idea that, well, women are like a class, you mm-hmm. know, in Marxism, you know, trying to sort of search for some way to think about how, you know, women might be individuals, but they're structurally situated and ideologically constructed to have something in common. And she was trying, I mean, they're kind of desperately trying to get women to think about you know, some of their, you know, common or similar experiences with other women. And they're really trying to experiment with different ways of thinking about women as a class and also developing some really important critiques that I think we would do well today to pay attention to of that kind of individualizing logics. And Firestone called this sex privatization Mm -hmm. in trying to conform to normative ideas about femininity and what it means to be a woman that that's when you experience yourself as an individual, right? And that's just a problem, right? That you actually think that that's how you realize your your individuality by conforming to these sort of social roles that have been constructed for you. And another way you become sex privatized is when you don't recognize the institutions that are shaping your experience. So for example, she has this great section where she's talking about the institution of marriage, which is a very precarious institution and that most marriages fail. But she says, nonetheless, you don't think about this as an institution you're participating in. You only think about this as an individual relationship. And so she says that we're all sort of guilty of, you know, sort of offering a we're different brand of optimism because we're not willing to think about these as institutions. We only think about them in the logics of individual choice. Right? Yeah. So she had some really great tools that, that were, again, you know, difficult to forge in that moment when there weren't many sort of precursors that feminists could draw on, but some great tools for thinking about how individuals are constructed to be, in some ways, functional members of a larger set of institutions and ideology. It's time for a break. Lady, this is what, what do, do you, you do, do all day, day lady? By Peggy Seeger. How do you spend your time, lady? That was you and McCall no with the opening challenge. Got no time to be answering. The future in the family when interchange returns on WFHB. Scrubbing and sweeping and sewing and cleaning and cooking and ironing. Are you listening? I'm a production line all by myself. Only the wages are missing. Three kids of eight and seven and two. Pleasure is just a mythology. When it's over my head, I can't go to bed. It's temporal psychology. Mary's bed wetting and Tommy is jealous. The baby is yelling, is driving me crazy. And nursing and nanny a 
until I'm a granny, but why is it nobody pays me? I care for a lovely old mother-in-law, she's 87 and cranky. Husband's home with a feverish cold, run for the tea and the hankies, the hot water bottle, the telly, the paper, and now the kids have it, it must be contagious, so now I'm the family medical staff, but where the hell are my wages? If wives and mothers all took to their heels, you'd soon be needing an army, and paying them all their union wages, I bet it would drive you barmy. All eyes and ears, hands and feet, my sign is Gemini, should have been two of me, I do the work of a dozen a day, but where are the wages due to me? Prices so high, wages so low, budgeting must be meticulous, the hours I spend in looking for bargains and cooking them's really ridiculous, and though my man's doing all that he can, what he brings home is making ends meet, and I'll have to Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Women and Children First, and our topic is Shulamith Firestone's 1970 The Dialectic of Sex. My guest is Kathy Weeks of Duke University. Here's Firestone on the impetus for the masculine technological mode of thought. Quote, But man was not only able to project the conceivable into fantasy, he also learned to impose it on reality. By accumulating knowledge about that reality and how to handle it, he could shape it to his liking. This accumulation of skills for controlling the environment, technology, is another means to reaching the same end, the realization of the conceivable in the possible." She's not a true-born woman if she can't make a bed. What's the best of Firestone at this? Uh, let's start with that. The best... I think is the way she thinks about the future. Mm. Um, and so, and again, this is something that you don't find after the 1970s very often is that she was really willing to try to imagine a different far off future. You know, what would, what would feminist revolution look like? Now she wasn't trying to offer blueprints and, and she was quite clear. That's not what she was trying to do. Part of, she was trying to like, but convince us by example on the need to stretch our sociological imagination so we understand you know, the role of larger institutions, the institution of work and family in the construction of gender hierarchies, but also to stretch our political imagination. You know, we really have to sort of imagine you know, what's possible, not tomorrow or the next day, but what might be possible you know, a long time in the future and what it would mean to build um, a political a set of political desires and political organizations that might be able to deliver eventually, you know, in the far off future, a very different kind of world. So I really love the fact that she was even willing to speculate about utopian futures. Her vision, and this is the content of the vision, it was a vision of cybernetic communism, right? And a key component of it, and this is actually sort of a path to bring us from the present to a future of cybernetic communism was a proposal for a guaranteed basic income, mm-hmm. right? That would sort of separate work from income, right? In a, in a, in a period where there weren't going to be enough jobs to go around because of technological developments. She was trying to imagine how we could fundamentally reorganize work and the allocation of income um, that would be adequate to a highly technologically based economy in the future. Now, at the time, in 1970, this was seen as crazy. Mm-hmm. But today, 
you know, it's remarkably prescient and remarkably timely. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is it's a vision of a post-familial society, right? And again, for her, the institution of the family, which privatizes our responsibility for the work of reproducing us as workers and creating new generations of workers, that the family and the institution and the ideologies of the family was one of the problems. So she imagined a series of alternatives, you know, a, a, a larger menu of the way that people might form households, for example, mm -hmm. that people enter into on a voluntary basis. They may or may not set time limits on it. Um, you know, a series of different ways of forming networks of sociality and care that might support child raising among a collective of people, for example. Mm -hmm. So placing the family with a set of, you know, different possible forms of household organization and membership. Mm -hmm. Last part of this vision is of a, a post-gender world, right? So she wants to imagine a world where however you imagined sex difference to be sort of organized, whether it's genitals or biology, that those physical differences would not matter culturally or socially, right? So biological sex would not be translated, not just into sort of two possibilities of experience where males are raised to be masculine and females to be feminine, but that those Physical differences will have as much social meaning as the size of our earlobes, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of her speculation, too. And again, I just think that, you know, in this moment, it's worth sort of reopening this imagination of the abolition of gender. Mm -hmm. I think if you look to any... Um uh, perhaps science fiction of the uh, the feminist science fiction writers in particular. The, these are th these things have been imagined in in many ways. Uh, Ursula Le Guin writes obviously quite a bit about these kinds of things. The dispossessed in particular, perhaps uh, Left Hand of Darkness as well. Um, there are attempts to imagine a world that isn't bifurcated by sex. Um, that that the roles aren't designed to be biological uh, and determined by bio biology. This is the point. The primary point of the book as well is to say that this is the problem. Biology has determined domin dominance. Biology has determined hierarchy. And the family has, has sort of, um, I guess, um, continued to replicate those psychological hierarchies as well. Um, so the problem here is trying to understand how is it that biology creates those superior inferior perspectives is a father better than a mother this is doug storm on interchange kathy weeks of duke university joins us to talk about shulamath firestone's 1970 book the dialectic of sex the case for feminist revolution better than other ajax shoulders move boulders helen's hits launches Opposites favor their opposites nature. Adam and Eva, fish and chips. What does she mean to say? How is pregnancy? How is being a mother? Uh, how is that really? It seems to me the the main part of the problem here. Yeah, and again, I think that's probably the most controversial part of the book, and it's fundamental to her basic argument. So she wants to say that the oppression of women 
gender inequality is grounded in the gender division of labor, right? And I'm willing to go with her on that. I mean, I do think the gender division of sort of domestic labor, caring labor, the way that that division of domestic caring labor then gets translated into occupational segregation where women are concentrated in caring professions and low-wage service work. I really do think that that gender division of labor is a is one of the most important kind of machines for producing gender difference and hierarchy. So I'm willing to go with her that far. The problem is that she takes it further. Now, and so she wants to say that gender division of labor is in turn grounded in biology, in women's capacity for reproduction. And again, this was and remains deeply controversial and I think dramatically out of step with other feminist theorists because what she's doing is conflating you know, the gender division of caring labor, even if we imagine that just focused on children with pregnancy and childbirth, mm -hmm. right? They're not the same thing, right? And if one is gendered pregnancy and childbirth in this moment, it doesn't necessarily mean that women should be primarily responsible for raising and caring children. But she conflates the two. In making this claim and saying, ultimately, the cause of women's oppression is rooted in their biology, she says, and that can be fixed, hmm. right? In, in saying that's the problem, she has an easy kind of solution, a kind of technical fix that we can use reproductive technologies to create sort of artificial wounds. So extra uterine reproduction is going to be possible very soon. Women don't have to give birth. We won't define men and women in terms of their different biological um, relationships to reproductive labor and caring for children. So she's kind of set this up. So if that's the problem, well, she has an easy kind of fix for it. And so one of the things that she might have been doing or one way to read what she's doing, she's kind of accepting her opponent's basic argument and the longstanding argument for why women right, are a special class of people and why they are primarily responsible for domestic labor, and thus why they are primarily going to be sort of hampered in the rest of life by that primary responsibility, is she wants to say, okay, I agree with you. You're right. You're right. Right? But you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. It's kind of a brilliant move. And that's one way of reading it. Another way to get at the argument, too, is to say that She's trying to, you know, it's as if like this notion of biological difference to the reproduction, it's like this big roadblock to thinking about anything. So she wants to sort of say, look, let's just imagine that that's not a roadblock. You know, just kind of put that to one side. And now let's try to think more expansively about what the problems are and what the solutions are, too. So in some ways... You know, if if this notion of biological difference is such a roadblock to thinking about gender equality, well, she says, look, let's just let's just get rid of it this way. Right. So it's it's like this 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 technological fix, right? Mm -hmm. This future reproductive technology. It sort of plays the role that a spaceship plays in a work of science fiction. Yeah. Like 
take us to this other planet where we can just sort of start imagining a different world. If you can't be careful, try to be good. Well, we cared and we cared as much as we could. We always agreed, me and my man, we said someday we'll try the family. It's time for another break. Here's another from Peggy Seeger, Nine Month Blues. More on the dialectic of sex, the case for feminist revolution. When Interchange returns on WFHB. Soon I got the nine month of blues. Too much to gain or too much to lose. But he was kind of happy when he heard my news. I got the nine month of blues. There was him and me and the baby made three. But we made up our minds to stay that way. With little bit of things made of rubber and such. And cause we were friends, we decided to go Dutch. When we said I do, it was a solemn oath. So we did and we did and it pleased us both. We still can't figure out what went wrong. But that's the first line of the nine month song. I got the nine months blue. Too much to gain and too much to lose. I get out the dress and the sensible shoes. I got the nine month blue. I said, this time around, I'm gonna cast my stone. I'm gonna have a chance to call my life my own. About the SPC, the FPA, they said, keep that child, don't fling it away. The doctor said he had the right to refuse. The law says if you want to beat the noose, you gotta be rich or near to your grave. So away I went again on my nine-month rave. I got the nine-month blues. Too much to gain. Too much to lose, and that time around, I got a McTuesday, I got the nine months. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange, and we're talking about Shulamith Firestone's classic of second wave feminism, The Dialectic of Sex. Our guest is Kathy Weeks of Duke University and author of The Problem with Work. Here's Firestone on one of the problems with our thinking about pregnancy. Quote, a mother who undergoes a nine-month pregnancy is likely to feel that the product of all that pain and discomfort belongs to her. But we want to destroy this possessiveness along with its cultural reinforcements so that no one child will be a priori favored over another, so that children will be loved for their own sake, unquote. The next thing we tried was the capital P, and I-L-L is what that made me. My head buzzed open and I nearly went crazy and my moon started rising every 14 days. It says I may be sick, but I'm a safe answer. And I think the entirety of her argument comes down to, I think, again, culturally defining what is masculine, what is feminine, tying it to these, to the biology of each, right? So uh, tying uh, the technological mode of thought, right, to, to the masculine, to the male characteristic. And I think it was the aesthetic mode. Is that uh, what she ties to the, the female? Can these two come together, right? Uh, while, unfortunately, within the, within the argument, that the fix itself is a masculine fix, yeah. right? So it kind of confounds what comes next. You know, if the masculine fixes the feminine, then it's all masculinity at this point, right? <laughs> No, and I think that's a kind of, I think that's a, that's a good way to get at this text critically in some ways. You know, she does say later on that in this future she's imagining, it, it might be that women will still, some women will choose to give birth the old fashioned way, but she says they might indulge it in it the way that some people still wear white to their wedding. <laughs> it's sort of a traditional idea, you know, but it's not so meaningful. Like right. she wants to try to make it. It's not that she wants to eliminate it. 
she wants to make that biological difference more inconsequential. The problem is that she ends up saying quite horrible things about pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, and I think she's rightly been criticized for this. So she talks about pregnancy is barbaric. She likens giving birth to being a pumpkin. Mm-hmm. Basically. Um, and again, I, 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 I don't think there's really a way to defend that way of talking about it. And I think it is sort of drawing on a kind of anti-feminist analysis in order to make a seemingly feminist argument. On the other hand, I do appreciate her attempt to try to, you know, by one reading, make pregnancy a a choice and b not so monumentally consequential so that if you imagine that a woman gives birth, then she's also signing up for being primarily responsible for the rest of it too, in some ways, and her attempt to kind of demystify pregnancy. I mean, it had been, you know, pregnancy has been so overcoded as, you know, by these cultural mythologies and sort of platitudes about what the experience is supposed to be like. It's very rare to actually hear real women's voices talking about a wide range of experiences of pregnancy, some of which are not particularly, you know, uplifting, you know. And, And again, I do appreciate that dimension of the argument to try to demystify and de-romanticize, you know, the experience. Yeah, we get, uh, in these conversations, we do get stuck in this, in this way in which we, we have trouble imagining social structures, you know, beyond the ones that we're very, very clearly aware of or the ones that we believe are quote-unquote natural. You know, this is an attack on what is natural as well in many ways to say, what, what makes any of this a natural consequence of, of the biological function? Um, yeah. You know, that's an important thing to think about. And, you know, why why do we consider the nuclear family natural when it's clearly a construct? And she goes through the history of that as well, right? Yes. Yeah. And I actually think that's a really powerful part of the argument. And those were the kinds of arguments that Firestone was not alone in making. So Kate Millett also went after the institution of the family. And I think a lot of there were a lot of powerful and insightful critiques of that institution that feminists have since backed away from. Hmm. Um, And I think, you know, for some good reasons, right, because it sort of to talk about the family as an institution denies the incredible diversity of families Hmm. and how family might mean something different. But I still think the family is not just a set of individual relationships, it's an institution, Right. And, you know, the fact that, you know, there are certain kinds of patterns and there's certain kinds of gender expectations that are attached still to the institution of the family. And more than anything else, the institution of the family is a mechanism for organizing and um, enabling this kind of reproductive labor that the society and the economy absolutely depend upon. We have to reproduce ourselves as individuals. We have to reproduce new generations. We have to take care of the older generations. How are we going to organize that kind of socially necessary labor? Well, the institution of the family is one way of delivering it, and it's based traditionally on certain kinds of gender roles and a gender division of labor. And most importantly, it's a private institution. Hmm. So we don't provide much social support for any of that work, and we don't provide even much time off waged work in order to accomplish it. And I think that that 
part of the institution of the family that we need to really sort of interrogate. And Firestone was doing that work in the 1970s. Mm. I think we need to continue to do that work. Is a father better than a mother? This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Kathy Weeks of Duke University joins us to talk about Shulamath Firestone's 1970 book, The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution. better than the other. Ajax shoulders, move boulders, heaven's hips, launch ships, opposites favor, their opposites nature, Adam and Eva, fish and chips. Well, she does try, uh, I think, uh, to replace the terminologies as much as anything else. Uh, it's one of the interesting part of the book, too, is it says, you know, so the family is a Roman word for basically servant. Uh, you know, th- that means this is the, the, the servant class of the house is called the family. And so I think she replaces it with household. There is a, I think there is a, a strategy there to replace terminologies that, and that we see today, I think, as part of our gender um, issues, right, is trying to replace terminologies so we don't just categorize by pronouns and things of that nature and then limit uh, those things as well. Uh, it's interesting to, to, to try to, again, imagine oneself out of the family, right? And as you talked about care and you talked about social structures, um, and I, you know, as, as we age, with the help of medicines, you know, we, as we age out of our ability to even care for each other, as as the 75-year-old now has a 95-year-old uh, parent uh, to, to care for and is not necessarily feeling well, we understand that we're, we're sort of hurting ourselves with our technologies in a lot of ways also. So these are, these are sort of problematic issues that we think, how do we change the social world we live in so that we do care for each other and don't just try to I guess, purchase a plot over in the, the old, old age home for somebody, which most of us can't afford either. Um, right. you know, so, so these are very difficult questions and uh, I know they're tied to how we continue to, to actually not support each other, right? It's, it's part of, as you say, the privatization of care that we can't actually accomplish anymore. Um, and that keeps us struggling, keeps us laboring, keeps us worrying, keeps us in debt and, and really keeps us controlled. And it's sort of, that's the aspect that I think she's attacking as much as anything else, right? The, the controlling aspect of this social construction. Um, so how do we get outside of it? You know, just to say, don't, don't be pregnant, you know, don't, don't have children. Don't, you know, how do we get outside of the construction of the family? One of the, one of the ways she understood her project was trying to, just as Marx was looking at the relations of production, she wanted to look at the relations of reproduction, right? And reclaim, you know, the means of reproduction for human ends. Mm. So, I mean, I think she really is sort of imagining this as central to her project of feminism. And she did have some interesting things to say about that because she did, because she's trying to lengthen our temporalities of change and recognize that not a feminist revolution, because that's what she was trying to outline, mm-hmm. is not going to happen next year. Right. right? This, she's talking about large historical processes in some ways. And so we have to really think in a longer time frame when we're thinking about social change. And a longer time frame means that we don't imagine that social change happens by changing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you know, she has some very provocative ways of talking about that. She says, 
we're constructed to be certain kinds of psychosexual subjects. You can't just imagine you're going to reconstruct yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't just become a different person. You can't just legislate different desires for yourself. Right. And so you have to imagine change on a larger trajectory. And what the way to imagine social change is not sort of by, you know, a kind of punitive prescriptive discourse about how we have to imagine that we can change ourselves. But we have to think about it in terms of a longer process of changing the social institutions that shape us to be certain kinds of individuals. And that's the political project. Mm. So, I mean, I think she opens up the possibility for a much less sort of, I don't know, moralistic or even punitive notion of politics that's really all, you know, on the shoulders of individuals. Mm -hmm. Politics for her is not something individuals do. It's something that collectives do, Mm. right? You do it with other people and social change is something that happens when we can come together to, over time, change the social world that produces us to be certain kinds of beings. It's a real struggle, right? It's a struggle to even have a conception of that. I'm not saying anything strange here to say that it feels like we're so stuck in this way in which we're supposed to change, not just change ourselves, not just learn how to be better or different or struggle through these these problems, but to only succeed of ourselves as well. And, um, you know, a book like this at least forces you to say, why do I accept all these things? It's time for another break. This is Talking Matrimony Blues, another by Peggy Seeger off of Different, Therefore Equal. Girls don't hanker for bouquets and veils. They soon turn to cabbage and nappies in pails. The joys and the sorrows of conjugal life. All these can be yours without being a wife. You won't hear all this song now, and I strongly encourage you to listen to the full song as soon as you can. Stay with us for more Women and Children First on Interchange. You never get completely free choice anyhow. Too many people you can't marry for a star, like Paul Newman. A man decides to live in sin, no one's gonna go blaming him. He's the boy, got his need, he won't be a man till he's done the deed. A good girl ought to live alone until she's wed and in her home. Not supposed to cut no capers till she's got her bit of paper on. Now, there are places in this world where they tell the young men and young girls Before you hit your marriage bed, indulge yourselves Go ahead Eliminate the cruder forms of sex impulse from your matrimonial selection But civilized folks, despite our climates, fancy we're above those primates Scorning prenuptial intercourse, we favor marriage Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest is Kathy Weeks of Duke University, and our topic is Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex. Here's Firestone on the oppressiveness of the family and childhood as organizing institutions. Quote, The development of the modern family meant the breakdown of a large, integrated society into small, self-centered units. The child within these conjugal units now became important. For he was the product of that unit, the reason for its maintenance. It became desirable to keep one's children at home for as long as possible, to bind them psychologically, financially, and emotionally to the family unit until such time as they were ready to create a new family unit. 
for this purpose, the age of childhood was created. A wife remains at home all day, never a word of earning pay. Kids and housework all alive, every family needs a wife. So let's move from the nuclear family to childhood as well. I, I do want to think about these institutions, right? Because school school comes under attack quite viciously as well, and to me, justifiably so. Um, but let's let's talk about childhood. How is how is childhood? How is being a child an oppressed state as well? Yeah, and that's another thing that I think is really remarkable about this text, and something that you don't find very often in feminist texts since then, is that she's very committed to children's liberation mm-hmm. and really thinking critically about how child is childhood has been imagined and socially constructed and how it's, you know, sort of infantilizing long after children are no longer infants in that sense. And I think she has a real respect. She wants to, she wants us to have more respect for children in some ways. And so that we're constantly sort of, we imagine that we love children, but we don't treat them with much respect. Mm-hmm. And I think she has some really, really interesting things to say about, you know, treating children more respectfully and giving them a little bit more agency in regard to the kind of social relations that they they're surrounding themselves with. Yeah, she she does tie the the again the social denigration of women with the uh, the social uh, minimization, I suppose, of of of, of children. Um, but one thing she and maybe this isn't exactly right to say valorizes, but one thing that does seem interesting here in terms of class distinction or trying to understand how classes act or how certain classes are managed a different way to recreate the social world we live in, right? So if you imagine the middle class is, is it gets the most attention, right? We need the middle class to reproduce itself a particular way so we don't have to worry about the lower class, right? In some sense, we don't ever have to worry about the lower class. And, and she valorizes it in a, in a, in a kind of way the lower class uh, street, neighborhood, wherever you find people who don't, um, who aren't helicopter parents, I guess is the term we use now, right? Where kids are just out playing together and there are many relatives around and there are many relationships that aren't parent-child strictly, you know, this is, this is the one-to-one relationship I have to have with my child, but the child gets to be in life with their own companions, their own relationships, with adults and children. There aren't the segregation of age as well. This is where school comes comes in too, right? The segregation of age is a problem also. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons that I find 70s feminism, and this is not just unique to Firestone in this text, is that but this is something that you even find in Friedan's liberal feminist, the feminine mystique from 1963 is that they're trying to push back on these, the, what has become today, I think the dominant ideology about parenthood, which some people have described as intensive mothering, Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, caring for children is a primarily a woman's activity. So it's mothering rather than parenting that it's incredibly labor intensive, that it's incredibly, um, requires an enormous amount of resources and emotional investment that it's, you know, this very difficult process of recreating children that have the cognitive and emotional and physical capacities to survive in today's market, that it's, 
It's, it's an intensive model of parenting, which used to be imagined for only, you know, the wealthy classes. Mm-hmm. I think it has become the dominant set of ideas about what constitutes good parenting. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I think Firestone is pushing back on. Mm-hmm. Um, In a big and, way, yeah. You know, that this, this is not only a problem for parents and mothers, but it's a problem for children. We were arguing about a book that, um, not arguing about it, but talking about a book that makes a case, it says in its subtitle, for feminist revolution. And all of these things are attacking institutions, which is what revolutions do. They say these institutions are the things that create this bad world that most of us live in, even if we, even as we talk about how great they are, you know, even as we talk about how, how much better, uh, uh, our health is, even, even as it's not. You know, even as we talk about our, our wonderful achievements and technologies, even while they keep us in the particular state we're in, um, the idea is that this is a revolution and revolutions require turning over, right? And so, as you say, this book is a kind of manifesto to turn over your biological thinking. So coming out of the, the Red Stockings period, too, you know, there's the Red Stockings Manifesto, uh, which is, you know, clearly solidarity for women. Uh, male supremacy is the primary problem. Uh, women are an oppressed class. Um, we have to identify men as the problem. You must say it. Men are the problem, right? Uh, yeah. And that uh, this oppression, racism, capitalism, as, uh, imperialism, as you say, are extensions of male supremacy. Uh, this has always been the case. And uh, the slander, the, they say the most slanderous evasion of all is that women can oppress men. Um, you know, so, uh, and this is, this is actually my favorite one. Actually, we, we regard our personal experience and our feelings about that experience as the basis for an analysis of our common situation, because all other theory is male supremacy. Is a father better than a mother? This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Kathy Weeks of Duke University joins us to talk about Shulamath Firestone's 1970 book, The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution. The practice of consciousness raising that was sort of invented or reinvented probably by Mm -hmm. by radical feminists in this period where women would get together and they sort of share their experiences and try to find commonalities and patterns. So it was a way of understood of building theory from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to rely on anyone else's generalizations about our experience. We're going to build our own generalizations based on these encounters. I also appreciate this as an effort to try to sort of build knowledge from the ground up rather than a rely on some theory that you're going to apply to someone. Mm. The, the part about men, I think, was really interesting, reading the Red Sox manifesto mm. again, right? And that the fact that they, they say, no, the problem is men, right? And you can't just put this on institutions. And as someone who does put it on institutions, difficult for me to hear, but I found it sort of interesting too, trying to figure out, you know, what are they getting by making this claim? Because it was very provocative and that, you know, particularly in that moment where feminists were all understood to be man haters. Mm-hmm. You're just saying, no, no, no. Right. You can't get out of this by saying it's just a matter of institutions. I mean, I think that they're really trying to call people to responsibility mm-hmm. by trying to hail them into these categories like men. 
right? But one of the things that, that struck me um, is that the idea of the technological fix, the cybernetic communism or the future of cybernetics uh, is, again, is just a thing that I have always been afraid of. And not not because I think women will no longer be women or, or that women will be unburdened from being uh, uh, pregnant or, or giving birth, but rather to say, and I think this is the issue, this has been the issue generally, is if men can figure out a way to be, uh, to reproduce the species, then women who are already second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth class citizens become far less valuable to a dominant class, or uh, I don't know if class is the right word there, a dominant gender, if we're going to say that, right? So that men who who own technologies, men who who create the technologies, men who, who continue to give the technology the, the theoretical ideologies behind them, you know, that if men can give birth technologically, then this seems to me far more dangerous for women than a cybernetic future that that benefited women yeah i think i disagree with you (laughs) that's a good thing right yeah i don't i don't think that you know being primarily responsible for uh pregnancy and giving birth has really empowered women in any way and i don't think that you know if that is the source of their value that it would take away women's value i don't I mean, I think it would it would might take away the way women are constructed as valuable mm-hmm. or not in that moment. But I I don't think it would necessarily take anything away from women. You know, my concern isn't with that. Like, isn't trying to say that is the only way women should be valued or are valued. Right. I think the problem is that as we've been talking and that this book points out and all other uh, second wave feminist books seem to me to point out is that that's the construction that you live within, that you are that value. And that even if you and I can argue about it or believe in it or, or, or talk to other women who believe that childbearing is irrelevant to their value as people, we are living within this constructed um, world and that this constructive world makes the technologies, you know, that's my, that's my problem with it. It isn't to say that I feel any of those things about women as, as having only that value or that society should only value them for that. But to say that that is the construction that we sit within. And those are the people that create those technologies, the people that do believe those things. Yeah. Yeah. And this kind of, you know, um, pro-technology feminism is is particularly when she was writing was very rare and Mm -hmm. i think people were much more suspicious about the social uses of technology and what's happened you know how are they're constructed and and what purposes um they're deployed in and firestone is not naive i mean she does say you know technology in and of itself is not going to do anything for us and that technology is never neutral so i mean i think she's quite wary of you know, that, that technologies are always created for and imbued with certain kinds of social purposes. Um, and, and that's something to be wary of. And I think that that sort of critique of technology has been, was such an important part of feminism in the 1980s. So that when you get Donna Haraway in the famous Cyborg Manifesto actually trying to articulate a feminism that recognizes the dangers of technology, but also wants to sort of, 
you know, use them and, and affirm them as potential human powers, that was really groundbreaking. I mean, today we've got many for, forms of cyber feminism that are trying to think about technology in less sort of you know, technophobic terms. Mm -hmm. The time when Firestone was writing, um, this was very, um, this was something that was seen to be very, very dangerous. And I think it, you know, rightly so. I mean, I think it is dangerous to try to think about what we can do with technologies yeah. in that. Well, we'll have to get into that on another show, right? Yes. Another, another show on the Cyborg Manifesto, perhaps. Yeah, cool. that'd be great. Is a father. That's our show. One more from Peggy Seeger. The title track off of the 1979 album, Different, Therefore Equal, an album tailor-made for today's show. Thanks to Kathy Weeks for returning to Interchange to discuss the dialectic of sex and for agreeing to return to talk about Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto. Next week, Family Values. Melinda Cooper argues that our age of neoliberalism must be understood as an effort to revive and extend the poor law tradition in the contemporary idiom of household debt. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon, editing assistance for today's show by Sarah Storm. Our studio engineer is Bryce Martin. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie. Coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. It's ridiculous Comparing one who's prickless To one who's hairy Is black better than white Day better than night Without either There'd be neither Some women Try to be she-men Then say that he-men's Are worse than demons Nature gives us equal chances And to get them, you shouldn't have to wear pants We're not like moles, doze or rabbits We should control our social habits And things will turn us against each other And don't learn us to be sister and brother If her and him are indispensable Treating them similar is only sensible. Reason gives us the logical sequel. We're different, therefore equal. Mm -hmm.